Amen. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Let's give Justin a round of applause. One of our amazing pastors. I love him. He's awesome. You should love him too. Um, like Justin said, my name is Sam Breen. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Um, I'm excited about this message. Um, I've been kind of studying. We're, we're in the book of Revelation, and so some texts kind of a, require a little bit more kind of depth and study and context work, and I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd, and you'll get that here in a minute, but I've just enjoyed just kind of diving deep into this text, and my, my hope is that uh, we'll kind of rise to the surface and see what treasures kind of are, are available to us by the end of this. Uh, and so with that sake, uh, let's just pray and enter in just one more time. So Jesus, I just give you this moment. I say yes to you. I say yes to what you're gonna say, how you're gonna lead, how you're gonna be among your church, your great big church all across the world, and this little church here in Atlanta. Come. Be a part of it. Awesome. Are we doing okay, Andrew? This feels like it's a little hot. This um, uh, mic, are we, are we okay? All right, I'll trust you. Okay, so just um, to uh, kind of set the scene a little bit. So we're in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're not looking at the whole book of Revelation because that would take forever. We're just in a couple of chapters here where we're talking about the seven churches and the letters to the seven churches. Rob, I think four weeks ago, did an amazing kind of setup message. Go back to hear some more about this. But just to kind of set the scene, kind of set the context, we are reading letters written at the very end of the first century. So around 90 AD, we're going to be looking at a letter written to specific people in a real city. When we read the Bible, it sometimes is hard for us to like get that. Like there's written by a guy called John in sometime around 90 AD to a city for some specific reasons. And so um, I just wanna set that scene because John has a reason why he's talking. He has a reason why he's even offering these big letters. And here's the thing about John. John was the, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. He was one of the, uh, the disciples. And at this point in the history of the church, he is most likely the last living disciple. That all of the other disciples, including uh, the apostle Paul, have probably been martyred by this point in the early church's history. And so he's the final one. He's maybe the last one that's actually walked with Jesus. He was the known as the one who rested against Jesus's chest. He was the youngest among them, and now he's risen to really be the leader of the whole church. And, and here's the thing. So he's, uh, he actually uh, doesn't get martyred. He, he dies of natural causes in a prison on the island of Patmos. And, and so he's off the coast well, and he's probably longing to be with the churches, just like the leader of the church. And he's like, guys, I just got to set you up for the next generation. Think about this. He's, he is the bridge between those who are with Jesus and those who didn't know Jesus and will have to continue the way of Jesus without being with Jesus. So he is the bridge from with Jesus to without Jesus, but always with Jesus. And so he's trying to set up the church to live a new way. So I just want to throw up a, a, a little map just to set the scene. This is, oh no, let's go to the big one. Um, the other big one. 
there we go. Um, so this is kind of uh, down to the right is uh, Jerusalem. That's the little pin. The little uh, red dot is Patmos, middle of the ocean in the Aegean Sea. And then we have these seven collected churches. And so I just want you to see that Jerusalem is very far away from the seven churches, even on their own. That if we were thriving, even if we were doing great, they are very far away. They're about 600 and something miles as a plane would fly. So that's like going to DC, very far. But even still, their leader is in the middle of the ocean. Not very helpful. And so if you see on the right-hand side of those little seven uh, churches, there's three kind of in a row. Pergamon at the top, um, Smyrna in the middle, and then Ephesus right at the bottom, closest to the uh, coast. And go to the next map. This is the city of Smyrna, now known as Ismar. It is positioned right in the Aegean Sea. It was um, known as a city and as a settlement from 700 BC. Get that. Almost 3,000 3, years, this city has existed. The guy who wrote the Iliad, Homer, he lived in this city. 650 BC. That's a long time. And why it was so significant was because of these little mountains that kind of crest around the city, kind of protect it and allow it to kind of be. And then this harbor that comes in is also protected by all of the winds and all of the weather. So it's actually really easy for ships to come in and out. So it became a really easy settlement for the people to have access to the rest of Turkey, now what was once known as Asian Minor. And so it became this really important settlement. And so um, I'll go back to us, uh, uh, an image here in a minute, but we can take that off for a second. Um, so Smyrna, like I said, was, um, was settled 700 BC in um, the kind of age of the Hellenistic period where um, uh, Alexander the Great was becoming the conqueror within the Greek uh, empire. He found Smyrna and was like, gosh, this place is awesome. It feels really kind of defensible. feels really important. Let's just put a bunch of effort here. And so he started uh, designing the city more like what he would understand. So really sharp roads, broad roads, the center of the road that's still there was known as the Golden Street. So all of this wealth began to come in to Smyrna at the age of about 200 BC, and then right at the point between where the Greek empire kind of crashed and the Roman empire was kind of cresting to significance, the, this city was kind of figuring out what its allegiance was. And it was, kind of, uh, it was kind of connected to some kind of like kings in the region, but as it kind of saw the, the fruitfulness of the Rome kind of cresting, it was like, we want to align with those guys. Those guys seem like they're going where we need to go. And so what they did was, they were like, okay, let's all get together. What do we want to do for the Rome? Let's worship the city of Rome. And so they invented the cult of Roma. They invented in Smyrna the idea to worship the city of Rome that then became the, the idea of worshiping the emperor. So we're in this little civilization that has been there for a very long time that invented worshiping people to get their approval. 
we getting the setting a little bit here? Okay, so as, as they began to kind of become more significant because Rome was like, hey, if you're going to worship me, let's put money there. I feel great about that. So then they got an actual temple to an emperor, Tiberius. That was the emperor um, where Jesus was born. You remember in the, like, the little Lucan uh, narrative, it talks about like the age of Tiberius. That's Tiberius, same guy. He actually has a temple in Smyrna that was given to him, and they were like, gosh, we love you so much. And then by the time of the early church, again, kind of 90 BC, uh, after AD, there was a new emperor called Domitian. Rob kind of in the beginning of his uh, sermon of the series kind of talked about his kind of uh, way of the church and it was really um, horrific the way that he positioned himself to the church. But that same emperor, so the same emperor that was, that was ruling during the time of this letter had just got given another temple in the city of Smyrna. So they had just dedicated a brand new temple to the current emperor. So this whole thing about worshiping Rome is pretty centered in the city of Smyrna. And what was really interesting, we can go back to the, um, to the, to the map real quick. What you'll see is uh, the, the little one on Smyrna. There we go. Oh, no, we got it. Perfect. Um, so just where you see that word that's just underneath uh, Isma, there's a little word there, and that is the Mount Pagos. It's a little hill crest within the city, and it was the backdrop of the whole city. So the city was kind of positioned up against this little backdrop. And what they did was, in the beginning, and as they established the city, they built all of their temples cresting on this hill. All of their temples were cresting on this hill, all the significant buildings that were kind of pushed towards whoever was ruling in that moment were kind of put on this little hill, the Mount of Pagos. Did I say Patmos a minute ago? I meant Pagos. Similar. And it was known as the crown of Smyrna. We're going to hear that word crown here in a second. That it was known in all of the region that Smyrna had a crown. And it was this little hill crest that was on the city that as the, as the kind of civilization was kind of bustling, it would look up and they would see this crown, this amazing kind of uh, work towards man's, man's ability to build these huge temples. And they would say, yes, let's worship Rome. That's our crown. They actually even put it on their coins. They put a little woman who is the kind of personification of their city with a little crown of buildings around her head. So this idea of a crown of Smyrna was deep within their city. You, I've actually got a little image. You can go to Google and find out anything. Um, if you click to the image of kind of a modern view here, boom. So this is Mount Pagos looking across the current modern city. So we're up high. So you can see it's a really level plane and then a really quick upjet. And so you could imagine as they were building the city, all of these things would have been incredibly impressive. And they were looking over this, this kind of city that was kind of bustling and trying to figure out. And deep within that city, somewhere down in that space, was a group of Christians just trying to find their way. There was just a group of Christians trying to live the life of Jesus. Many who had never met Jesus, who had just heard the stories of this Messiah, this great one who had come alive again. 
this great one who had something worthy of their life. Does that sound familiar? And so, even though these letters aren't to us, I do believe there's something in these letters for us. Because much of the letters were just designed to set up the church for the time after Jesus. And unfortunately, we're still living in that time. So, um, I forgot my water, so I'm going to walk over here. Time out. Good transition point. Cool. Well, you probably haven't, um, you pro- like, even the idea of kind of being set up to a season after the kind of founder's gone, maybe that's hard to kind of connect to. So I was kind of thinking, like, what's the modern context? Maybe it's like um, a business founder, like an organization's founder, and she was just about to go into retirement, and she was setting up the situation and say, hey, like, remember our original intent. Remember our original intent, what we were here for. Like, why did we even start this organization? I'm going to go to retirement. I'm, you can't call me. I'm going to be on a beach. But I need you to remember what we're going for. And as we go on, let's do it the same way. That's the kind of thing that John's talking about. Or, or maybe you've had the moment where you were with a loved one or a grandparent, and just before they died, you had a precious moment with them. And they offer to you a pearl of wisdom or some kind of notes of wisdom from a, a life well lived. And they were like, you have to go beyond me. Here's everything that I know. That, maybe you've not had that. I, I, probably the closest thing that I experienced was the, the founding pastor of the Grace Family of Churches was a guy called Buddy Hoffman. And, and in January uh, 2017, he gathered all of the staff of the churches at the time. I think it was about five or six of us. And he had had some health issues and he had had some continued health issues that began to be really pressing. He had had a bulging disc and that then his larynx had been uh, ruptured and he was having this uh, aortic uh, dissection of his heart and he was really having a challenging moment. He had just had a kind of an uptick in health and he said, I've got to go to my churches. And so on a Thursday afternoon, we get an email, like a week before we get an email, we're like, hey, you've got to come up to Snellville. Buddy wants to talk to the, to the staff. And it was this kind of weighty moment. For those in, who remember that room, it, it felt weighty. And Buddy, the man who'd kind of founded the whole thing and kind of worked tirelessly to kind of offer, he, he just kind of began to just speak from this kind of fathering heart. And saying, hey, guys, like, let's remember the central things. This is, I have a little excerpt from what he said. I think it's actually posted somewhere, everything that he said. This, this is what he said. He said, the kingdom is bigger than any momentary pain. Distractions come and go. But the bigger issues of the heart are what can never be afforded to be overlooked. Love well. Cover one another with grace for the sake of the kingdom. Do not let a bulge in a relationship suck you away from the greater story, nor a rupture in your plans take your eyes off the prize. It is a temporary pain. It's not going to kill you. But if you ignore the heart and the relationships with God, that will kill you. That will kill us. And he went on. 
And actually, that evening, he went into the hospital, and uh, he actually was never with the staff again. That was his final words. And so you can imagine, John's in a very similar situation. He's trying to offer these words of wisdom. He's trying to offer these words of guidance. He's saying, I don't have much longer. I don't even know if I have days to live. I just need you to follow Jesus. Can you go in the way that he told me? I remember him. I remember the empty tomb. I remember when he came to us after he resurrected. I remember when he broke the bread for us. I remember, I remember, can you? So that's the kind of setting of the scene. So if you want to turn to me, let's read, um, turn with me to Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Just a short few verses, but I'm hoping we've got some treasure in here. I'll take a sip while you turn. Okay, here we go. So Revelation 2, 8 through 11. This is what it says. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are my words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came back to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. That idea of victor's crown is also in, translated uh, crown of life. We'll come back to that. But remember, Smyrna had a different crown. So when I was thinking about this text and just trying to get to the root of it, um, it it's helpful when we kind of find challenging places in the Bible to kind of find where, what's the central theme. If we can identify the central theme, often the things that are confusing, often the things that are a little bit adjacent are usually the things that aren't actually the center and they are informed by the center. And so when we, this is just a helpful tip, just when you look at the Bible and you're like, I don't get this, find out what the center of that passage is. And if you don't understand it, it's probably something contextualized that you don't understand because you weren't there. Um, I wasn't there. Um, and, and we can just find the center and then learn from the center outwards. Cool? So I was thinking about uh, this, and, and I was reminded uh, in my kind of prep of this, this conversation that I had a rab with a rabbi in the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And that sounds like a setup of a joke, like a rabbi walks into a Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. It was literal. I, I literally was in Washington, D.C. in the Bible Museum with a rabbi. Um, not a joke. I was up there with um, the college ministry. We, we go up there to kind of uh, partner with um, Grace Capital City, one of our churches that we planted up there. And we were just kind of, you know, working with them, having some ministry. We had an afternoon off and we were like, let's go to the Bible Museum. I'm a Bible nerd. You already know that because I have maps. Um, so I was all about it. 
And so we went to the little exhibit that was talking about the kind of history of the Bible, kind of how it was uh, kind of put together, what was the canonization of it, what was the, all of this stuff that's very interesting to me. I love it. Uh, and we got to the end of the exhibit, and there's this little booth where there's this man who's transferring information or text onto a scribe. And, and really, the point of the exhibit is to show how they actually would, uh, how scribes would write down the Bible before we had the printing press in 1450. Uh, AD. So very recently we've had printing presses where we could like print a lot of books. Before that, literal people, which is crazy to me because I have an iPhone, would actually sit somewhere and write the entire Bible. Anyway, so there's this guy. Um, he's a rabbi. This is what he's good at. Uh, and so he's um, transferring the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, over and over again from piece of paper onto a scribe so that they could be used in synagogues all around. Um, and so I got a little image of him because uh, I took a photo of him, very thankfully. This is Rabbi, I forget his name, but you can actually go see him at the Bible Museum. He's awesome. Um, but the, the idea, and you can leave the image up, I, I just was like, I don't talk to rabbis much, so he seems pretty wise. Let me ask him a couple questions. Um, and I asked him a very childish question, which was, what's your favorite verse? It felt important. As I look back, it feels less important. Like I could have, but because he's a rabbi, he was very generous and got to a better question. Um, and so he, he actually asked, answered my question twice, very rabbinical of him. Um, and he said, the most important verse is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you know about the Jewish faith, that's what's known as the prayer of Sh the, the Shema prayer or the Shema prayer. Uh, and this is the kind of the great prayer of the faith, that they only have one God and there is one God to be praised. And then he said, that's the most important one, but the most helpful one to follow, uh, to understand how to, f uh, to follow God is this one in Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. He said, this day, and he was not reading because he's a rabbi and he knows the text very well by heart, but I don't. So here we go. Uh, this day, I call the heavens and earth as a witness against you. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land. He swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he went on and he said, choose life. If you wanna follow God, daily figure out how to choose life. And that kind of stuck with me. I mean, it's pretty good. It's like a rabbi talking to you. I haven't met many rabbis talking to me, so I was like, I'll stick with that stuff. Um, but I was like, I, th I think that's a part of what this text is talking about. When, when John is, is writing to this, to, these, um, to this church, he's saying, choose a life. There's a different way. But I want you to choose the Jesus way, the life way, the way that he has gone and begun and started and will continue to go. Can we get into that way? 
And so as we look at the text, there's, there's just really like three characters. There's three big characters in the, this kind of letter. First one, Jesus, pretty good one. Second one, the devil, pretty bad one. And then the, the church. And so I'm just going to look at them really quick, and then we'll kind of figure out what's the kind of conclusion of us here. And so we have Jesus. He's known in this letter as the first and the last. That, that title it comes up a little earlier in the text in chapter 1, but it actually comes from Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8 says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay down before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And yet, what is to come? Yes, let him foretell what is to come. Do not be troubled. Do not be afraid. Didn't I proclaim what is happening? Am I not foretelling what happened long ago? You are my witness. There is no God beside me. No God like this rock. I know not one. And so this title written to the church, as soon as they would have heard the first and the last, this would have conjured up that immediately there is no other God. Just think about that context that I said as in a city that is, that is well acquainted with what making just a God out of anything, just to gain the approval of whatever power is pushing on them. Jesus says, there is only one and I'm him. And then right after the title of the first and the last, there's a little like extra bit that says, the one who came to life again. And so connected to this one who is the only one to be praised is this idea of the resurrection. Connected to the only one, the first and the last, is the only one who is, was born again and was the first of the new creation. And so connected Jesus is saying, I am the only one to be praised because I'm the only one to have resurrected and to defeat death. I'm the defeater of death. I'm the conqueror. Come follow me. What you don't know about um, Smyrna yet is, is that Smyrna was obviously had a ton of persecution. Later, um, uh, one more generation, a guy called uh, Polycarp, was, he was the kind of first um, uh, he was the first, what are they called? Bishop, there we go. He was the first bishop um, uh, of Smyrna, one of the first three bishops after the, the apostles. And he was killed in the stadium in Smyrna. And so what you can imagine is that when he, and he was, he was a part of the church when this was written to him. He would have been remembering that I have a God who is redeeming all things. That even unto death, he can make a way. That as he was being persecuted and martyred for his faith in Jesus, the words of John were probably ringing out in his heart. And so we have Jesus, this one who is the first, the last, the one who is resurrected. And then we have the devil. In the text, it talks, there's a couple of different words here uh, for the devil, and it's, it's, it may be helpful. But really, we're just talking about the great enemy of God. 
And the devil is a little bit more of a narrow term. It's the kind of the used in the gospels for the one who actually came to Jesus in the desert. It's the one who kind of tempted Jesus. It's like a literal figure of a person. It's like a character in the story. And it's the one who's known as the accuser. And so the devil is the accuser. It's a very kind of narrowed, it's only used in, a, in the idea of like this literal figure that kind of shows up in and out of the kind of the big story. And then there's this term Satan, which is actually connected to the word adversary, which is a much broader term. And it's really just like, hey, anybody who's opposing the way of Jesus and falling into the way of death is, could be actually considered a part of this adversary of God. You can remember when Jesus, he says this crazy thing, and it always offends me, even when, he, when I like utter it. When he turns to Peter, just after Peter like proclaims Jesus as, as Lord, he turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. He's not telling Peter that he's the devil, that he's like the one who was there in the garden, like whispering in uh, Adam and Eve's you know, ear. He's just saying, you're being an adversary to my kingdom right now. You're being an adversary to the way of me. And so how I understand that is by calling you Satan, you now know, I know that you are an adversary. And so this, this idea of that there's a, there's a um, synagogue of Satan, there's tons of reasons and crazy theories and whatever. Anything in Revelation is crazy theorialized. But really what we just need to know is that there was people in the room, people in the city that were meant to be Jesus people, but were actually adversaries of Jesus. People who were pushing against Jesus' way. And the Christians were trying to figure out in this complexity of Rome and their friends that were maybe not calling them to life. Where, what do I do here? How do I follow this Jesus? And so we have the, the character of Jesus, the character of the devil, and then we have the church who's just stuck in the middle. Stuck in this middle of swirling, and, and there's three things that are kind of said about the church. One, that they are rich. One, that they will be, two, that they will be persecuted. And then three, that they have the opportunity to receive this crown. And so, real quick, that idea of being rich, it's connected when he, when he, in the text it says, I see your persecution, I see your poverty, but yet you are rich. What John is reminding the church, really importantly, at the, again, at the, at the moment of the turning the page, the chapter is changing, where those who knew Jesus are no longer alive. Those who didn't know Jesus are coming. And he's saying, your current circumstances do not define you. What Jesus' value over your life, whatever he says of you, is the pinnacle of your value. And he says you are rich. Do you know why you're rich? Because he is with you. It's connected to even to those beatitudes that Jesus talked about. It's like, hey, those who are meek actually get a ton of the kingdom. Those who are, um, who are, uh, are, are kind of poor of spirit get the kingdom. What he's saying is that you don't have to be defined by the world. You get Jesus and that's enough. So this idea of them being rich, even though their circumstances call them poor. And then there's this idea of persecution. And, and I was just thinking like, gosh, I don't really think of myself as a persecuted person, especially in America. It's amazing. Like 4th of July, we should celebrate that we have religious freedom. It's incredible. 
that we have this country, that we have religious freedom. And there's tons of countries, and there's people probably today in hidden rooms with lights off trying to praise Jesus, and they are the heroes of our faith. But when we, when we think about persecution, we can often, like I just did, put myself on the sideline. And that I have no persecution and there's no kind of situation where I'm kind of being pressed on and kind of being subverted and kind of having pressure to go a different way. And kind of everything gets kind of mixed up in this kind of subtlety of the Western thought. And I was like, I... And the reality is, yeah, we're not being overtly persecuted. But do you feel like you're being pressured to pull away from the way of Jesus? Do you feel like you're being pressed to move away some morals that you see in the Bible? Do you feel like you're being, that you're being convinced that you need more than Jesus in your life? Honestly, that is, and it, I even hesitate to, to label it in the same thing as those who are uh, being overtly persecuted, it is the persecution of living in this world. It's the reality of living in this world without Jesus, that we don't have him, and we're gonna be having to figure out every moment, every day, where's Jesus? And can I find him in my daily moments? That journey is the same journey of a persecuted church. Where is Jesus in my current circumstances? If you're asking that, then you have connection to the persecuted church. Where is Jesus? Can I find him? Can I connect to him? Can I learn what his way is? That is still the question of the church. And so, finally, that idea of the crown of life. Again, it is so clever that John even uses this language. It's, it's not found often in the Bible, this idea of crown of life or, or victor's crown. It's a couple of other places where Paul talks about it. But the reality is, is, is that he's, what he's saying is that you don't get to be defined by Smyrna's crown. Don't be defined by Smyrna's crown. If you are faithful to the way of Jesus, you get something different. You get something lasting. You get something forever. You get something enduring. And that's everlasting life, unity, harmony with me. And you can experience it now. The incredible thing is we know a little bit more of the story. That crown of Smyrna actually was destroyed maybe 70 years later. Earthquake happened, the whole thing crushed. If we build our lives defined by the world of man, things that can shake and break in earthquakes, what we'll find out is that they're so much more temporary than we think they are. What we need to ask Jesus is, gosh, Jesus, I need to understand your resurrection. I need to understand how your life and your ever living life changes who I am today. 
And everything else that I see in my life, can it be defined by my vision of your resurrection? So I, I, guess, I guess where we're ending today is around the question of the resurrection mattered to Smyrna. And what, Paul, what John was asking them was to choose life again. And I guess that's my question for you. What aspects of your life, what areas of your life do you need to choose life again? The amazing journey of this faith with Jesus is that we actually get to choose the areas of, of our life that he gets to invade. He gets to rush in. He gets to partner with us. We get to decide. We can actually say, you don't get to be a part of my finances. You don't get to be a part of my relationship. You don't get to be a part of my future. You don't get to be a part of redeeming my past. You don't get to be a part of redeeming my, my, my pain or my shame. But I would ask, can we choose life today? Can we believe again that the resurrection matters? That it's hard for us to imagine. But there was a man living on this earth, a divine man, who died and was resurrected again so that we can have new life. And that means all of our life. Can that be the central thing can all of the other worries, all of the other anxieties, not just be disappeared, but be found in rightful place to that truth? I'll invite the band up. The church in Smyrna found themselves in a hopeless place. They weren't, they weren't feeling themselves like they were powerful. There was the world pushing on them. They had persecution that the letter said is, is here and it's not going anywhere. What areas of your life feel hopeless? What areas of your life feel impossible? What areas of your life feel so disconnected from the life of Jesus that you can't even imagine what it would look like for him to rush in and save them? Maybe it's the redemption of a marriage. Maybe it's the longing for partnership. Maybe it's just your view of yourself. Really kind of trivially, trivially. I experienced this this week. I was... Me and Taylor, we have a two-year-old. He is awesome. Uh, his name's Noah. You'll probably see him running around here in a second, eating a popsicle. Very cute. Um, and uh, we're just kind of in a, we're in a little bit of like a transition period, and he was not going to sleep well. If you are a parent, and we were in a moment of absolute crisis. It had been like multiple months where we were like, really like trying to steward our son. And being like, you have to sleep, but you don't want to. <laughs> so, and it just became a fight and it didn't feel right for us to kind of, like to keep on pushing it on him. And like we were trying to figure it out and we were just at a 
we were actually just at a loss this week. We had, like, we had actually shed tears being like, Jesus, we don't know how to do this. But this is the first time being a parent. We do not know what we're doing, and we don't have enough sleep to figure it out. So help me. Help me, Lord. <laughs> and, and like, truly, honestly, we were at the end of ourselves. And it feels so trivial. But if you're a parent, you're like, I get it. And I came to staff prayers on Wednesday. And Justin, he just kind of led a moment of prayers. And he was like, hey, just like, what do you need prayer for? And I was like, honestly, I just need like new vision and, and help with Noah sleeping. Like he's not sleeping right now. That may be a transition moment. It may be a, like a development stage. I don't know what it is, but like we need to help him sleep. And he was like, okay, let's pray. I don't know anything else but pray. It's like that, that song, Defender, that we just sang. I just praised and everything came in line. I just put Jesus in the center of my issue and everything changed. And I, like, it, again, it was my experience, so it feels so much more important to me. But I went to, uh, I like started bedtime routine and you kind of got that anxiety of like, where's the moment of chaos. Where's the moment I'm going to have to like convince him to go to sleep again? And Wednesday and still we've we've had amazing bedtimes. He went to bed at 7:30 and woke up at 7:30 on Wednesday night. Uh went to bed on Wednesday night, woke up on Thursday morning, 12 hours, no waking up. Incredible sleep. Yes, thank you Jesus. Amazing. And, but it, it feels so trivial. But what I want us to connect to is that even the trivial parts of your life, even the bits that you've said, this is just a part of the journey. This is just a part of being a parent. You just have crying babies. I wanted to choose the life for our family. And so we asked Jesus in. We wanted to choose life and so we decided, let's just intentionally pray over this situation and see if life comes in. I don't know, he'll probably have another like developmental stage and we'll figure that out, but I am praising him <laughs> for the now. And so honestly, where do you need to choose life? Where do you need to learn from this ancient story of people just trying to follow Jesus in a chaotic world. Where do you need to choose life again? And let us not forget, when we're choosing life, we have the one who has overcome death to give us life. It's the great claim of the church, the great claim of Christianity is that we no longer have to fear death. The thing that was over our life that was pushing down on us, that was pressing and saying, at the end, you'll die, so what are you gonna do now? We have one who's claimed a new way. So where are we gonna claim that way in our life? Let me pray and then the band will lead us. Jesus, we trust that you are a new way. You are our way. You are the way of life. And today in this moment, Lord, if it's a trivial matter, if it's a huge matter, in whatever way 
we choose you. We choose life and life abundantly.